politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Trump indicted. Yet again, plus our leaders are really old. We'll discuss all this and more on this special outcome determinative edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, my friend and yours, Jeff Blair, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Waterstone and College L. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we're going to divide up this uh, latest Trump indictment. We're going to talk about the legal argument over it first in the first segment, and then we'll go to the politics in the second segment. So the uh, legal argument against it is that you should know when you're committing a crime and there was no one or very few people who, who thought in the run-up to, to January 6th that, uh, and when Trump was trying to, was publicly pressuring Pence to do this absurd, absurdly unconstitutional thing, that he was literally violating the federal criminal code and committing crimes. But you have Jack Smith in here, who perhaps not coincidentally is the author of the failed John Edwards prosecution and the failed Bob McDonnell prosecution, offering, uh, at the very least, a a fairly adventurous interpretation of the uh, fraud statutes and some other federal statutes to say, no, Trump was violating the law, uh, black and white violations of the law, four counts. What do you make of it? Yeah, um, most of it struck me as like the very typical of the whole political dynamic that we've had since 2015, which is Trump does something wrong, and then to oppose him, uh, the his opposition does something uh, beyond the lines, right, or or beyond the law as well, and that's that's what struck me is, is this one, like the Jack Smith's previous indictment on the documents case. When I read that, that struck me as very dangerous to Trump. Like it had him, I mean, to me, it looked like they had him dead to rights if they can prove all the claims in it. And, you know, given the, the photographs and other evidence, this one, you know, you have to prove that Trump knew he lost, uh, which is something that every account seems to show him saying publicly and privately the same thing that, you know, he won. Come on. Of course they cheated. That's that's his view. Um, I think the only person who's really disputed that in public is is Bob Barr, whose whose word I take seriously. Bill Barr. 
Bill Barr. Um, uh, you know, Bob Barr's also good on this topic. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but B- Bill Barr thinks that Trump would, would not do well under cross-examination on, uh, in these or in Discovery. I'll, I take that seriously. But otherwise, I think this was totally needless. It was uh, It's over-egging the pudding. Jack Smith already has a solid case to prosecute against Trump. The only thing I can imagine is really in his mind is his thinking of he's going to get a jury that hates Trump uh, out of out of Washington D.C. and that views you know January sixth as criminal, which in a way it is. It may not fit the. It may not. It's not. It doesn't fit the statute book uh, exactly. So, what do you mean by January sixth? I mean they they view they've you know. Jack Smith's basically spent the press conference for these charges that he he dropped this week talking about January sixth, mm-hmm. and so that's going to be the case he's going to make. But is but the, all these things, the pressuring Pence January sixth, or the rioting January sixth, or when you say January sixth, what are the whole we, conspiracy that led up? You know, the, that's the his in the idea in his head is that this was a conspiracy to overthrow the election that involved pressuring Mike Pence. That also involved, you know, as getting cooperation from other uh, people in the yeah. administration. So, so, I mean, all, all that's true, though, right? I mean, it, it was a all conspiracy to overturn the election and all of it's true, and that's and that's why he should have been impeached and convicted in the Senate uh, for the political crime of doing all that, you know, mm-hmm. for, for, and and you could label it everything from sending a mob to the the Capitol itself is is enough. Even even encouraging a, a boisterous protest uh, at the Capitol is kind of trespassing lines that the mm-hmm. a, a, a president shouldn't uh, cross at all. Okay, uh, so failing failing to call off the mob when he could have you know all those yeah. things are crimes that should have been prosecuted in the political forum of the Senate. And so 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 Jeff, this this is the thing, and and you wrote about this. So political crime. Absolutely, crime, crime. Do, do you do you think it's a it's a violation of I- any federal statutes? I don't think I've ever been more torn on, on like a major legal issue in my adult life, really, than this one. This is the hardest call, and it's the hardest case. And the reason for it is, you guys have actually covered quite a bit of it. You know, it goes <clears throat> to things like our, it's First Amendment speech issue. We got mens rea issues in terms of like this is not a slam dunk case. Um, but I guess you, the first thing you have to address, you just get to the threshold, is like, well, should this be charged as a crime, or was it su- politically? Was the system politically, you know, sufficient to deal with it? Remember, Donald Trump was impeached. We forget about. It's amazing how like much water is under the bridge donald trump was impeached twice and uh he was impeached once over this and it's all done now and so maybe that's enough uh i understand the where people are coming from when they say it's not because this is a singular moment something actually happened like this man for better or worse the case is at least going to be made that he tried to seriously overthrow the government or at least impede the peaceful transition of power at the very Mm -hmm. least that's a big deal is that something that just 
we sweep under the rug? Well, you can make an argument one way or another, but I think in terms of criminalizing it, uh, he's got a reach on some of these you know, speech things. On the, the indictment as it has been submitted, I consider insufficient. But I'm holding my fire on that because I saw what Jack Smith did in the Mar-a-Lago indictment. So, so okay, in, do you in, notice how we updated that one? Yeah, I did. No, yeah. Insufficient in terms of Trump's state of mind? Or yes, where, insufficient. Where is insuffi if it is just the basis like, oh, Trump really knew or should have known, which is the way he's saying, mm -hmm. you know, based on what's in the indictment right now, facially, uh, I'm not convinced because it's just the same stuff he's been saying for the last seven years, basically, even before the election, even so, in 2015. So, so there's so, got to so be but, more, though. I think things so, but are Jeff, being let, let me Let me hone in on the, though. So that's sort of the question can can he convict him but but do you think there is there there are the the, the crimes being alleged are actually crimes i don't this is where, as I said, this is the toughest edge case in my life. Okay, we can always talk about, well, it's not technically covered by a statute. It's not technically governed by this, that, or the other thing. But you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like Al Gore, you know, it's saying no controlling legal authority. You know, remember that when he was like, you know, <laughs> fundraising out of the White House back in the 90s in the Clinton era? I, I'll, I'll never forget it. That was part of my childhood formation, just the sleaze of one that. Of the, so one, I, of the, I, one of the great, greatest phrases of the 90s, no controlling yeah, legal authority. Yeah, no controlling legal authority, but there's got to be some controlling legal authority when somebody tries to overthrow the government or at least stage a riot at the u.s capitol yes i agree but, but is, is there i don't know i think there should be but okay. yes is there yes is there here, here's the thing here's here's an ugly reality of law there are always going to be edge cases and the way law is often made is by hacking down new trees we just clear new ground because you get novel fact patterns this is a novel fact pattern this has never happened before rich hopefully well, I, I, it will I, never I, happen I, again but it's really it's nothing to compare it to so by definition we're kind of all on virgin territory here and that's why yeah, I'm but so what if you're a prosecutor like by the books prosecutor why didn't you why wouldn't you just stick with the case what is actually a crime and and it's provable you know and, and there seems to be a, no legal defense, really. Well, well, the document stuff, rather okay. than go, you know, adding on something that's uh, at the very least murky. Hey, Rich, I'll give you my best answer to that yeah. question, just thinking the way a prosecutor would think. Maybe it's because you recognize it would be better strategy to do that, but you genuinely believe this guy tried to overthrow the government, mm -hmm. so you have to prosecute the case. Mm -hmm. Maybe, yeah. Jack Smith, you're right about his earlier – the, the John Edwards case was a wonderfully instructive reminder. I remember that one. On the other hand, John Edwards, <laughs> he was doing what he did. He just should, It shouldn't have been a crime. That's why right. he didn't win on that one. But right. I'm telling you – That's an exact analog. We, you and I both know like the documents case is a slam dunk. As I wrote in my piece, they get, he gift-wrapped it. To them, mm -hmm. it's just like here, here, I use vi you video your photographs. I right. took all these documents. Right. There you go, you're guilty, you're done. Uh, why not stick with that? Well, because this actually is a crisis of sort of significant gravity. Mm -hmm. And I know but, it's not like it's it's like a horrible argument to make, but then again, these are the edge cases in life. This yeah, is, I think he's, all, he's Jack Smith is kind of a fanatic in the Liz Cheney. Yeah, you probably you might be, you might be right, but you know what? At the end of the day, that's the thing that I take away from all this. It's unfortunate. This is why I said I was going to be sort of doom podcasting with you guys today is that we're kind of through the looking glass here now. One way or another, Donald Trump's going to go on crime for go mm -hmm. on trial for this. This is happening now, people. It's going to be a very weird several years. Charlie. I was out for a couple of days at a family event when all of this unfurled in real time. And having caught up, I'm not entirely sure what I think, but I think I'm sure about how to think about it. So 
I'll share my internal back and forth with you. That helps. As far as I can see, critics of this indictment contend that under federal law, fraud has to involve a plan to cheat victims out of tangible property or money or personal effects, and that Trump didn't do that. And they also propose that this is an intrinsically political area and it shouldn't be criminalized. And then the response to that, for example, from Noah Rothman, who dissented from an editorial we published that made the case I just adumbrated, says, well, that might be true, but there are other precedents in the record that run in the opposite direction when it comes to the definition of fraud, and that this was bad enough to rise above our usual norms under which this would be deemed political. Now, I, as I say, I'm not sure which side I come down on, but I do worry about this. For the sake of argument, let's assume that Noah is correct and that Trump's conduct counts under federal law, that it was potentially fraudulent. I worry that there's still a big problem with this approach, which is why doesn't the logic apply elsewhere? Mm-hmm. Why doesn't it apply to, say, Joe Biden's student loan exactly. order or to his order on the eviction which, which actually moratorium? Money. Right, or to Donald Trump's wall funding. Now, when faced with that question, someone might say in, re- in return, well, look, Charles, that's because those are political disputes. They're debates over the meaning of the law. They're assertions about statutes in the Constitution. But as far as I can see, the argument of those who think that this indictment goes too far is that as terrible as its implications might be, and as obviously worse as it was when compared to my hypotheticals, this one is also political. That In effect, Donald Trump is being indicted here for arguing that federal law means something that it doesn't, and then trying to act on that false understanding while president. Now, let me pause here for a moment to make it clear and reiterate for the record what I've said now for more than two years which is that I think Trump disqualified himself and ought to have been impeached. In 2021, with the conduct that we're discussing, he tried to stage a coup. Not with January 6th, which was a riot and a disgrace, but was a symptom. But with his attempt to use the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Count Act to stay in office when he's lost. That was the disease. But the thing is, the question that we're discussing here is different than that judgment. The question before us is, is this a crime? And I can see this narrow issue in both ways. To go back to my hypothetical, which I think is important, even if we take the more narrow conception of fraud that has been put forth by the uh, skeptics here, you could still make a case that, say, Joe Biden's student loan order counts or or could be made to count by a creative prosecutor because it involved a pecuniary loss. And if you expand it out to the definitions that Noah would prefer we use, he 
wrote in his piece, I wrote this down, conspiracy calculated to obstruct or unfair its efficiency. It's been the government to destroy the value of its operation and reports as fair, impartial, and reasonably accurate. Or, defeated by misrepresentation, chicane, or the overreaching of those charged with carrying out the governmental intention. Well, again, if you wanted to, you could say that the student loan order affected the government's budgetary predictions and ensured that those reports couldn't be fair and impartial and reasonably accurate and involved the president offering a false interpretation of a statute to take money out of the treasury and involved the legitimate official action and purpose of an agency and a statute and was defeated by misrepresentation, etc., etc., etc. And in addition, you've got a finding of fact from the Supreme Court in that case saying that Biden was wrong. So my question is, on a categorical basis, why in one case would an illegitimate interpretation of the law, and Trump's absolutely was, be treated as intrinsically political, and in another case the misrepresentation of the law be treated as criminal? Why would we leave one to Congress and another one mm -hmm. to the courts? And why couldn't the Republican Party wait for Biden to be out of office, which I think he'd have to be, and then bring a case against him on those grounds? So legally speaking, I do find myself somewhat confused here. I think the best argument against charging Trump is that this is why we separate out impeachment from crimes in the political arena in the first place, because otherwise we'd spend all our time taking each other to court. I can see that case. The best argument I can see for charging is that, yes, this one is a bit fuzzy and it's new, but that the political norm against doing this was not broken by Jack Smith, mm -hmm. but by Trump. Yeah. Uh, and that this ultimately is what courts do, that they evaluate evidence and different interpretations of laws and they decide whether or not they fit and that this should be done here too and that if it really is a stretch it'll be nixed by a jury or or reversed by the supreme court so i i'm a little bit confused um my bottom line is coming to this late what trump did was egregious he should have been impeached within the political process he should going forward be rejected by the body politic I'm not sure if it's criminal, and I'm not sure what the long-term consequences of making it criminal are going to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I understand people who are extremely frustrated and disturbed by the fact that the, the impeachment failed, and now he's apparently cruising to the Republican nomination and has some chance to be president of the United States again. And so I, I would understand how they'd grope around for some mechanism to try to keep that from happening, and my position is not like a, a double jeopardy one. You know, you've been impeached for something, you can't be indicted for it if there's a crime. I just, I, I don't, I just don't see the, the crime and, and MBD. Even if it's there, you know, proving it. Let's let's talk a little bit more about his his state of mind. I haven't talked to Trump very much over the years, just very very occasionally. But he called me out of the blue two years ago, and harangued me for about twenty minutes about how the election was stolen. I need to realize the election was stolen. Republicans were convinced it's stolen. Um, weren't gonna lift a finger for the party unless something were, were done about this awful act of, of theft. And there's some latest thing, bogus thing out of Arizona that he was very exercised by. But I, I just listening to him, maybe deep down somewhere, way, 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 way down, there's the kernel of I knew I lost and I just have to deny it. But I, I just 
from listening to him, I would have thought, okay, you, you slap a lie detector test on this guy, he's going to pass it. There's no way he's not going to uh, pass it, thinking the election was stolen. And then there's the matter of, um, you know, you can make the case that Eastman was kind of like a mob lawyer. You know, he was, he was in on this criminal conspiracy and just coming up with uh, uh, tawdry justifications for it rather than, you know, legitimate legal analysis. But uh, all this, almost all this stuff is carried out on the, the advice of lawyers. You know, the, the infamous uh, Georgia call uh, with Brad uh, Raffensperger, you really read the transcript of that and not just rely on the, the version of it that's, that's often repeated where it just makes it sound as though Trump saying, you know, manufacture 11,000 votes. When, when he's really saying, you know, oh, there are 100,000 illegal votes, and I just need you to find this many of them, you know, just a fraction of them, Brad. Um, and he has three lawyers on the call with him. And at the end, the takeaway is, well, okay, well, my lawyers uh, have this analysis of the various votes and, and think there are this many that are illegitimate. Can your lawyers talk to my lawyers about why they might be wrong or right? And then we can go from there. Um, so uh, it, it, a, a lot of this is um, uh, it, it's it's if if any you know if if relying on bad legal advice even legal advice bad legal advice you kind of knows bad legal <laughs> advice and and you're accepting for motivated reasoning would apply as Charlie points out equally to the student loan yeah case. it's it's it is a mess and uh, that's why that's why I tend to lean towards. Charlie, that if the if the criminal statutes are underdefined or vague, um, and you're just reaching for them kind of off the shelf because you are understandably outraged, then the proper forum for this was, you know, a political process, whether that's impeachment or that is the voters rejecting Trump. Um, the the what is terrifying to Democrats and to some Republicans is that the, you know, a huge number of Republican voters do not seem to be rejecting Trump, right? That, um, mm -hmm. you know, they, they uh, these indictments and the fact patterns described therein when they hit the media don't move the needle much. Now, I, I happen to think, and maybe this is transitioning a little bit, um, now I happen to think that the more the, um, the public is confronted with January 6th stuff, not necessarily as it was done during the, the hearings on January 6th in Congress, but just reminded of it. I think the more people are going to pull away from Trump. I, I like, I don't think, I don't think. Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let's put a parenthesis around okay. that and come, come back to it in, in our next segment. All right, Jeff, exit questions to you. Triple barreled Trump will get convicted in the stormy Daniels hush payment case yes or no stormy daniels oh that's yeah. a different one um, we're, we're going all three we're going to run through all three uh seven out of ten i think it's very i think it's probably likely because it's manhattan you think, jury you think he'll yeah. be convicted he'll be convicted in documents case assuming all the stuff goes to trial yes yes or no. yes he'll be con convicted in january 6th case yeah just because i mean if it's held in dc yeah <laughs> DC right, so triple triple yeses from from jeff Charles. that's a reality man Ooh, it's weird that's a strange thing to say that is actually true and going to happen. But yeah, all three. Charlie? I don't think he's going to be convicted in the Stormy Daniels case. Huh. Think he'll get off? Well, I mean, I think it's the weakest of all the charges. It's the one that shouldn't be there. It's it's completely Because, Charlie, you think, think the charges get tossed or that's the jurors that just think, don't go along? Yeah, I think it's a weak case. And I think it might be tossed even if the jury 
goes along with it. The procedural issues, I'd forgotten about those, right? They have to get get past the judge first, even, and we'll see what happens. This one... Hmm. I think he might get off this one. But I think he's going to be convicted for the documents case. All right, so we got a trifecta, although with with a little uh, wiggling there on the first one from Jeff. We have just one solo from Charlie, MBD. Yeah, I think he won't be convicted on Stormy Daniels. I think he will be convicted on the documents case. I think he'll be convicted on this one, too, on this, this latest Jack Smith stuff in D.C. I think... All right, I'm going to say no, no, yes. I'm going to say Stor- mm. Stormy Daniels charges maybe get tossed. I'm going to say there's jury nullification in the classified documents case, but he's wow. going to get nailed on the January 6th, nice. convicted on January 6th, but it will be overturned on appeal. So now, Are you making a you know, venue argument there, Rich, on, uh, on the, the Florida documents case? You're just thinking... No, I think that just there'll, there'll be a couple jurors just will be convinced by the selective prosecution. Mm. Um, and... You think Pardon the January 6th case will be overturned because the definition of fraud has been narrowed by the Supreme Court, and that's the one that will be adhered to? Correct. Okay, yeah. wow. Okay. So, Jeff, you know, these, these years, they might be chaotic, but now you know what's going to happen. You, got, you, got it. you heard it here first. So, with that, let's go to our first sponsor of this episode, Waterstone. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor-advised fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil, and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With the charitable pool trust, you can even generate a guaranteed income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, and does not give to charities that contradict those values. Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month in charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's giving strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. Please check it out. So, Charlie, we've had a, a pattern that's set in politically. Whenever Trump is indicted, it helps Trump. We saw that certainly with the, the Bragg indictment. Maybe you could say more of the classified documents one didn't hurt him. Um, but he, he gets all the attention. Attention is, in large part, the coin of the realm in, in presidential politics. It kind of miniaturizes the rest of the field. They have to discuss Trump. The, their own people are only paying attention to him for you know a couple, couple them for a couple weeks based on what they're saying about Trump. And they have the choice of either saying what most Republicans feel about these indictments, uh, justifiably at least somewhat justifiably that they are uh, a, a exemplify a weaponized justice system a two-tiered justice system that's out to get trump you say that and you're kind of a pilot fish to trump the vake ramaswamy your friend is the uh, perhaps the foremost example of this or you go to the underlying conduct and criticize it chris christie obviously this is always his approach mike pence interestingly kind of uh, tilting that way on on this one he he's 
kind of taken a pass on the legal merits, but it just said what Trump did was damnable, which is absolutely correct. So how do you see this one playing out in Republican politics? I find the argument that because Trump has been charged, he's therefore more attractive as a candidate or that Republican primary voters have an obligation to back him up in some way utterly ludicrous. I don't think that Donald Trump ought to be dropped by Republican voters because he's been charged. That would be illiberal and ridiculous and premature. And eventually, if indulged, it would lead to a system within which anybody who was accused of a crime could and should be removed from electoral contention, which would provide all manner of perverse incentives. I think that Donald Trump ought to be dropped by Republican primary voters because these aren't accusations, they're facts. The debate that we just had is over whether what Donald Trump did is a federal crime. That's important, given that he's been charged. But the debate we just had was not over whether he did it, because he did it in public. He openly tried to rewrite the 12th Amendment and the Electoral Count Act and to turn Mike Pence into an elections dictator who could help him stay in office. That's not a claim or a charge or a theory. That's a fact. And it ought to be enough to dissuade anyone from voting for him per se. Will it? Well, we're, what, eight years in now? He certainly displayed enough Teflon to the world. I do wonder whether there will be diminishing returns to these indictments for Trump. I do wonder whether after a while it bolsters the argument to those Republicans who want to win that irrespective of how one feels about the man or about his conduct or about these charges, he, as a matter of cephalogical fact, cannot prevail, rather than works the other way around. I have seen some people proposing, extrapolating out, if you will, from the first indictment. Well, the first one jumped him up 20 points. Maybe he'll get another 10-point boost for each subsequent indictment. I'm not sure about that, I must say. It matters that he did it as well. I think it's right for Mike Pence and Chris Christie to point out that these are not contrived from whole cloth. There's this argument you hear, sometimes from Trump himself, very often from his supporters and his surrogates, that they're not coming after him, they're coming after you. Well, are they? Irrespective of the merits of the Stormy Daniels case, most people do not have sexual affairs with porn stars while their wife is at home with a baby. Most people do not hoard classified documents at home and then ignore warnings from the federal government. Most people do not try to stay in power when they've lost an election. I think that the combination of the fact that it is clear that Trump did some or all of these things and the sheer number of the indictments and the way in which the public has reacted to them, look at the polling on this, 50-60% of Americans think that the charges are serious, I think less of Donald Trump for them, will probably combine 
to hurt him. Whether or not it will be enough to hurt him out of the Republican primary race or of the nomination itself, I don't know. But I do now think that we have reached the stage at which this has become a liability for Trump rather than a boost. So, Jeff, what do you think of the argument that uh, Democrats are doing this because they know it helps Trump in the primary, they want him to get nominated, this helps him get nominated, and then you get into next year and you have trials. We've already seen the the indictments have just been sucking resources out of the Trump political machine to pay for legal fees, and there's going to be the time element. He's going to have to sit in courtrooms, and as MBD, I think, was was uh, uh, about to, to say before, I so rudely cut him off to, to save this part of the conversation for this segment. You know, relitigating January 6th is not, uh, it, it, it's not Trump's uh, best best calling card, but you'll, you'll talk to some other people, Trump allies, and they're like, well, you know, if they really wanted to help him, they wouldn't be trying to throw him in jail for 200 years. We really think that's that's what they're interested in, and if that's, that's uh, help, just please stop helping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, listen, I, I, it's a great question because I, I believe every Democrat I've talked to in D.C. and in that world, I think they all reflect the same genuine schizophrenia about Donald Trump. That, yes, there's the part of their, the lizard part of their brain uh, knows that, like, yeah, well, he's going to obviously play in our favor to run against this, this man who's, like, literally threatening to rerun all of the madness of January 6th. But... Deep in their hearts, too, like in their real hearts, they are terrified of him. And, and I think it, that should not be underrated. It actually takes me back to the question. You framed it this way uh, in, in the earlier segment. You talked about how like you know, people are maybe prosecuting Trump because they want to prevent him from becoming president again. That's the worst reason in the world to ever prosecute anybody. Okay, Incidentally, yes. that's an illegitimate reason to prosecute someone. But there is a ring of truth to it, isn't there, Rich? Because I think there is a genuine feeling among the D.C. establishment that, hey, Hey, we didn't think it could happen last time. Look at Joe Biden, not in the best shape. It could conceivably happen again, so they're terrified. And the way I think about Donald Trump, you know, to relate to actually to Charlie's point about well, anything can slow his momentum. You remember the shark in Jaws? Remember how they first tried to go after the shark? They um they'd shoot like you know harpoons into it and have these barrels that would prevent it from going under, would slow it down. You're trying to drag the momentum of this thing down, and of course Trump in this analogy is the shark. Uh, and you do sort of wonder, however, like whether all these accumulated uh, indictments of him are going to just end up becoming such a weight upon him. You just look at him, and I'm kind of recapitulating Charlie's point, but it was a good one. You just look at him sagging under the weight of all of this, and you think, well, in one way or another, something is going to slow this down. And the question is, where does where does the momentum end? Does it end in the primary, or does it end in the general election? Right. But it's going to end. MVD? I mean, I, I believe in the theory that, it, as you said, I was going to say it, that January 6th stuff drags him down. And I think if it doesn't drag him down in the primary, it's going to be how Joe Biden defeats him in a general election. It's just reminding everyone of the chaos. I mean, it's it's it was when January 6th was much fresher in people's minds, and then DeSantis, then a year and a half, or less than two years later, wins a smashing victory that DeSantis was pulling ahead of Donald Trump. I mean, the the more that's in the minds of people, the more it will 
dissuade them. I mean, because it's it is the unpopular thing. It is the thing which even a lot of his his biggest supporters think he's did something really guilty and uh, unforgivable. Uh, whereas all the other stuff they they can dismiss as like, well, you don't prosecute other presidents who did this, or you don't, you know, you don't you don't go after Hillary for the server and bleaching it. Um, and setting it on fire, but you're going after him on documents. You know, there's just no analog um, to January 6th. So yeah, I think I think it harms him if that becomes uh, a subject. And I, I would encourage other Republicans in the field running against him to continue bringing it up. Like I thought it was, I, I think it's perfectly good for Mike Pence to just say it as plainly as he did this week a few times when he was asked, which was, you know, what happened that day? And he said, well, that day the president asked me to put the, him above the Constitution. And I wouldn't do that. Um, and I'll never do that. And anyone who does do that shouldn't be president. I mean, it's... I mean, think about it. Mike Pence could be a witness next yeah. year in a trial <laughs> against Donald Trump. And, and Jeff, I don't know whether you know the, <clears throat> the answer to this, but... Um, so if, um, let's say Trump, you know, these uh, trials are, are delayed. Um, so he, he would, if he's elected president, he'll just tell the Justice Department to stop, right? So, so the federal stuff goes away. But what happens, you know, like to the New York or, or the Fulton, the, uh, what we consume are going to be the Fulton County charges if he's president of the United States? Oh. The, are, are those still going? You know, will he be it doesn't go away. Tried as president of the United States? Well, again, we're in virgin territory. What's the closest analogy that any of us can remember is obviously Bill Clinton during the whole Paula Jones scandal, where you know he was in, he was forced to testify and he got convicted of perjury, I believe, actually suborning perjury or something like that. It's been so long. Um, that's a civil case, however. It resulted, I think, in a mm-hmm. bill being. So didn't didn't the, what, didn't the Supreme Court when they addressed that they said, oh, it's a civil c- civil cases can go forward because they're not that right. distracting. And, yeah, and so that's why a criminal case. I don't know. Maybe it is on hold. We're in virgin territory, and I, you you would say prudentially that the criminal case has to be put on hold because he's the president, he's the commander in chief, uh, and like, are you just going to remove him for like twelve months and put the vice president in charge? I don't know. I think you have to say no there. Uh, which, again, good reason not to elect the guy president, I'd argue. I mean, that's why we shouldn't give him the nomination, because this is kind of a constitutional crisis the country doesn't need. But, yeah, it will be a major crisis if Trump wins. And the, yeah. So, so, you're, you, so you're, you're thinking that the in this, this hypothetical, the, the New York and Atlanta charges would have to be, cases would have to be suspended or... Sus- or suspended, and I suppose, like, I mean, there'll probably be some play to, like, run out the statute of limitations in the four years while he's in office. Who Wait knows how it goes? Like, I I think I could be frozen and just brought afterwards. Why? What do you mean, why? Well, we have a federal system. We have different locus uh, of power for the federal charges and for the charges that come out of Georgia. I'm just saying there's a prudential issue here about you don't want the president of the United States to be on trial for criminal charges that carry jail time. It's in the middle of his presidency. It's like America. (laughs) Like like the the, the world order, frankly. It's like horrible chaos, and I do not think we're going to 
I do not yeah. think it's so, a sustainable you, situation. I mean, my objection here is that this is obviously the product, once again, of Congress not having done its job. Right. The preeminent branch at the federal level is not the executive, it's Congress. Okay, Congress well, yes, we, we have a the Congress executive. full of children, and we know this. No, I understand that, but let me finish the point. Sorry. The preeminent branch at the federal level is Congress. It's not the president. The president can't remove Congress. Congress can remove the president. It declined to do so. It should have removed him after he tried to steal the 2020 presidential election. In a fully functioning system, the President of the United States would be absolutely within his rights to instruct the Department of Justice to drop the charges against him because the power that the President is given within our system does not belong to something amorphous like the FBI or the Department of Justice but to the president, the head of the executive branch. But the obvious response to that from Congress should be impeachment. The only reason I ask, Jeff, is because it would, to my mind, although I understand your prudential concerns and probably agree with them, be yet another example of the corruption of our system. If a state, which has its own sovereignty in this realm, if a state, because Congress wouldn't do his job, was obliged to drop its criminal proceedings... Ask not to embarrass the federal government. That's that is a. I, I suppose yeah, so, this just so underscores MB- your point, which is that this would be such bizarre virgin territory that that who wants to live through it? So, MBD, what what do you think of that? Uh, because the the problem is, uh, take Charlie's point, but you know, do do you really want to have a local prosecutor potentially with the. Uh, power to, in effect, end the presidency or severely crimp the, <laughs> the, the, the presidency of someone by, by being able to put him in Rikers? Yeah. But he does have that power, Constitution. Well, that's, I mean, does Trump try to self-pardon? I like, I, I, I don't even, I can't even begin to think through. So he can't pardon on the state charges, right? Nope, can't. No, but what should happen here is that the local criminal case goes forward the jury does its job decides whether or not trump is guilty if guilty he's then sent to prison that doesn't remove him from the presidency because obviously Mm -hmm. the state of georgia can't do that and then congress saying well the president is obviously unfit for office and can't continue to serve impeaches him yeah wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, it, wouldn't it? I mean, be that, nice, would be, that, would, that would wouldn't it be nice if we lived yeah, in a that, that would, quality? That's how the system is supposed would, to I mean, work. I'm just saying that. I, would, I think that, it's important I, no, to lay it out. I'm just saying. I'm just thinking of the ratings. Like, I mean, the you'd have to get a, a Fox, Fox News, and special accommodations in 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 uh, uh, in, in, a, in a cell and lots of communications equipment and secret service protection, and you just keep being president. <laughs> you could do. Like the resolute desk behind a bar. <laughs> like pr- foreign leaders have to come and meet with them with, like, the phone, with the hard with plastic the plexiglass uh, oh, barrier. <laughs> but you see, this is what happens. <laughs> They'd roll out the red carpet, and Air Force One would land, you know. <laughs> or the foreign equivalent of Air Force One at LaGuardia. Like so many of the problems that we talk about, we can week out on this podcast this once again comes back to congressional abdication of its role all right so mbd we've asked it before we'll ask it again eventually sometime (laughs) in the next six months before iowa caucuses the indictments will drag down at least a little bit i'm not even saying a lot drag down a little bit donald trump yes or no yes because i i I think they're going to become they're going to be like the first or second question everyone gets asked about in the in the debates and you're going to have five to 
I don't know, eight people uh, on stage with Donald Trump with incredible incentive to bury him with whatever tools the hosts hand them. And that's going to be one of the first tools. So yeah, it's going to, it's going to affect him. Uh, It's, he, he has to keep up this, um, they're persecuting uh, you through persecuting me act up. Uh, But there's going to be seven or eight people that are in a position to stop him from, from pulling that one off. Because of course they're all willing to represent if they're as long as one of them is willing to represent you right credibly, and and can convince an audience, then I think it will it will affect him mightily. So MBD, I, th- I think saying seven or eight have the incentive is is ca- counting uh, kind kind of generously because there there are a number who are not interested in in uh, <laughs> really running against Donald Trump or making this case. But I take your point. There there are some who are. Jeff will eventually hurt Trump. Yes or no? Yeah, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that Michael's onto something here. Um, I I think that it will, I think it's gonna have a nuanced effect. I think it's both going to winnow his support and solidify it. So he's going to probably lose a couple numbers off the top, but his core is gonna be bound ever more tightly to him because, of course, the bond with them that they share is on an emotional level and a persecutional level, and they're not thinking this through the way we are. So yeah, I think his numbers actually. This is for me an optimistic take. I think his numbers actually are going to drop a little bit over the next six months. Can you believe we got six more months of this, folks? Um, and yeah, but I don't know how far they'll go. Charlie? I do think that this is going to lead to a diminishment in support for Trump, but I don't know how much. I don't know whether we get down to below the waterline where the sharks are to mangle Jeff's analogy. It seems to me that it is important that the other candidates the ones who have a chance, the ones who are now laying out a more positive vision, contrast that positive vision explicitly with what's happening to Trump, which doesn't just mean if I'm president, I'll do this, doesn't just mean talking about the economy and about Joe Biden's America, but saying relatively frequently You may have noticed that I keep talking about the future and what I want to do instead of 2020 and all that flowed from it. And I understand that that is a difficult path to tread, but I think that's probably the only chance of pushing this so far down that it costs Trump the nomination. I think by the end, it'll be a little bit of a drag. I also don't know how much of a drag, but it, it seems relatively easy. It's, I know it's much easier to do this stuff on paper than it is to do it in real life, just to say, you know, I, I think this, these charges are uh, preposterous. I will pardon the, the president for them, but it's just too much of a risk to uh, run him when he's going to be distracted by various trials next year when we're going to be re- relitigating the past and we can't afford to lose to Joe Biden yet again. So with that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode. Introducing Longevity by Nature's groundbreaking Collagel. Jellyfish collagen, the first of its kind and only collagen supplement for brain health and cognitive support. We all know that aging well is made easier with support from natural ingredients and new research on the gut-brain access demonstrates the effectiveness of natural brain supplements. Collagel is jellyfish collagen, the type of collagen peptides best suited for brain health and memory support. Recent studies have shown that cognitive decline begins earlier than previously thought, characterized by problems with memory, language, thinking, or judgment. 
and the decline may continue throughout life, but we can take steps to reduce this decline. Memory and cognition can be supported by adding a brain health supplement with the right kind of collagen, amino acids, and calcium binding proteins contained in Collagel. Longevity by Nature's Collagel really is superfood for the brain. Collagel has been called Nature's perfect collagen. It's the only collagen that contains the amino acids essential for good brain functioning. Collagel is rich in the building blocks for healthy neurotransmitters and contains natural neuroprotective antioxidants and macronutrients vital for cognitive function. No other collagen product provides these brain health benefits. Collagel is sustainably sourced from wild-caught edible jellyfish. It is non-GMO, filler-free, all-natural, and pesticide free. Try Collagel Superfood for the Brain today and benefit from longevity by nature's special first-time customer promotion. No obligations, no membership fees, no strings attached. Buy one bottle and get one bottle. That's a one-month supply of Collagel for free. Plus, I should mention, $6.95 for shipping in the United States. Use the code editors at longevitybynature.biz or call its toll-free number 1-877-412-9888. That's 1-877-412-9888. And start your brain-healthy journey with nature's perfect collagen today. So MBD, we had this really disturbing episode involving Mitch McConnell a week or two ago. We weren't able to get to it to real time, but let's hit it and talk about aging, which we've talked a lot a lot about in the context of, of Joe Biden. But McConnell standing at a press conference, he's giving a statement and just stops and freezes. And this is a, a truly bizarre and disturbing episode. They say he was lightheaded, but it's a little... That, that was very, very odd. I'm not sure that's what most people would do if they're feeling lightheaded. Now, apparently he's feeling better. I talked to someone who was at an event with him the next night and said he was, you know, totally in, in control and, and all there. But he's, he's too old to, you know, this isn't being president of the United States, but it's still a taxing job. And maybe you don't want to have leadership elections right now, but it should be uh, something that that's uh, um, that, that they, they do at at some point. But we have this gerontocracy. You know, Nancy Pelosi was an instance of it. She she got out while, um, you know, before she she was suffering uh, th- this sort of visible decline. Diane Feinstein, the, the most uh, sad and disturbing instance. And of course, we have uh, Biden and Donald Trump's not a spring chicken himself. So what's what's going on here? How did we get to this place where the American leadership, political leadership class feels a little bit like the 1970s era Politburo? Um, I mean, American politicians stopped smoking and drinking enough to die before, uh, this sort of senility sets in. (laughs) Um, that's really what happened. Um, uh, you know, we are living longer and we are living, uh, more and more people are experiencing, uh, this kind of end of life pattern of senility or Alzheimer's or post-stroke, um, you know, cognitive issues. Um, and it's, it's something we have to deal with. I mean, it's not just the U S Congress and presidency that's, that's facing it. I mean, other institutions are struggling this with this as well. I mean, like in the last decade or a little over a decade ago, a Pope resigned normally a lifelong office precisely because of fears of this kind of, um, mental decline, 
um, hurting the institution that uh, he led. And so it's something that I think Congress will eventually have to address, possibly with an age limit. Um, you know, uh, you know, we have age minimums for some offices, uh, like the presidency itself. You could have an age limit of seventy-five, uh, um, and you could you could set that for the Senate or Congress, and you could phase it in over time. Uh, to give people who were elected um, previously time to, they could be, as, as we say, grandfathered in um, to the system. But, you know, this is this is something we, we have to deal with in, as a society, um, that until there's some major breakthrough um, in reversing the aging of the brain or halting it at the end of life, um, there are people who are going to occupy these offices and they're going to go into steep and quick decline. Uh, and it's a risk. It's a risk to these institutions. So, Jeff, do you think that's a good idea, at least in theory, some sort of age limit? I think there's a lot more merit to it than I ever would have believed if you'd asked me 10, 20 years ago. I can tell you that much. And I think it, it does occur to me, you know, when I think through Michael's argument, which I, as I said, I think he's got a lot of merit there, is that these old, these old limits were... <laughs> put into place in an age where people just didn't really survive long enough to suffer from advanced dementia or Alzheimer's or mental decline while in office. Very few of them did, but it wasn't the norm. And that also speaks to a change in our culture, which is, you know, this is, again, we've talked about it multiple times around here. It's a gerontocracy politically, and that's the most depressing part about it, is that it seems maybe because of the cultural change over generations and a sort of unspoken, we joke about it, we turn it into a joke, but, you know, we just say, like, oh, these generations always think the next generation is lame. But it's notable that neither party has really groomed successors in legislative power. I look at Mitch McConnell and I think, well, who's going to take Mitch McConnell's place? Who steps in to fill the gap? Now, the graveyards, of course, are always full of indispensable men and things will carry on. But, you know, you just look at the fact that we're running Joe Biden versus Donald Trump in our next election, most likely. And you ask yourself, what is it about our culture that has allowed us to just be clinging on to the aged, old vanguard who are dead. Is it because they hold power or is it because we don't have any confidence in the next generation? I think there's a reason. Mm -hmm. I don't see anybody in the next generation who's really kind of stepping up to grasp the nettle too much. So, Charlie, what, what do you think of that? Does, does this reflect, is it just sort of an, an accident that you, you happen to have these, these very old people or does it reflect some sort of cultural change? Because, you know, the image we have of ourselves as, as Americans is, is we, we love youthfulness. We love what's, what's new, what's, what's cutting edge, and we have the, the very opposite in these, these high offices or candidates for high office. I have a suspicion that one of the reasons that this has happened is that people don't want to go into politics because it's so unpleasant. If you're a young person, you're aware of at least two potential pitfalls. The first is that something you said online, perhaps, when you were a teenager might be dredged up and your life might be ruined as a result. I feel fortunate that I didn't have social media until I was 20, not because I went around saying awful things, but I was an idiot when I was 15. The other is that people will lie about you and they could make your future pretty difficult to navigate. I've never thought about going into politics myself, partly because 
There are some offices I'm not allowed to hold as an immigrant, partly because I have an English accent, partly because I'm probably unelectable. But I do think about others who have told me that they have an interest in elective office, but are worried that their opponent would simply make something up, which of course happens, that would stop them in the future from being able to get a different job if they failed or left. I know politics has always been difficult, and there were times in our history when it was far less pleasant than it is now. The election of 1800 comes to mind. It really is, at the moment, ugly. If you look at the way that the left behaves and the right behaves towards anyone it dislikes, the words that it uses, the accusations that it throws around, I'm not that surprised that we don't have this solid cadre of of replacements. I think the life expectancy part of this is a great point. The claim or insinuation that any group is a problem or should leave office instinctively irritates and alarms me. I'm a universalist. I don't like generalizations. I don't like it when people say, you know what the problem is? The problem is black people, old people, women, what you will. But the reason for that is that I am interested in individual characteristics and merit. And unfortunately, there are now solid universalist reasons to be alarmed at the aging nature of our politicians. That being that they just can't do the job. Joe Biden is too old to be president. I'm not saying that because he's a Democrat and I don't like him. I'm saying that because I watch him on television all the time. Dianne Feinstein is too old to be a senator. Her daughter now has power of attorney. She cannot give interviews. She cannot get through a sentence. The incident, as you say, Rich, with Mitch McConnell the other day should prompt the man to retire. And I say that as a great Mitch McConnell defender and and a great fan of Mitch McConnell, who thinks that the vast majority of the objections that have been thrown at him on the right are nonsense. The The idea that... Diane Feinstein is not qualified to handle her own legal affairs, right? <laughs> but is qualified to handle all of ours. Is in, right. In, uh, this is not a generalization. It's not a stereotype. It's not painting with a broad brush. It's not taking people's immutable characteristics and drawing horrible judgments from them. This is saying, look, <laughs> there are actual people with individual names and social security numbers <laughs> and life stories who we can see on our televisions are not up to the jobs that they hold. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to make a broad criticism, I'm comfortable with that. Now, I think it would be a mistake to say, therefore, everyone who is over a particular age is a problem within our politics. I don't, for example, even though they're only one year apart, see anything that connects Diane Feinstein to Chuck Grassley, who still seems to be completely with, with it. You're right. And I would therefore be... What's the word? I would therefore want to see some nuance in any debate over age limits. But mm-hmm. yes, we do have a problem in this country and a problem that should be fairly obvious now that 
almost everyone who is holding the high offices in our nation is too old. I mean, the president's too old. Uh, the Senate minority leader is too old. Uh, the Well, she's gone now, in fairness. But Nancy Pelosi was too old. The Republican favorite for the nomination is too old. Like, yes, I feel comfortable saying that we have a, a, a broad problem in this area. So ideally, you'd have self-policing, right? The people who are getting old or realize they're getting too old and hang it up. Or people around them would say, you know, we love you, but it's it's time to go. But this just this very rarely happens. It very rarely happens. I remember Bill Buckley once in a meeting with some of us is like, you know, I want you guys to, to let me know if my columns aren't as good as they used to be. Just just tell me, okay? It's like no one was going to tell him. No one was going to tell him. And he was never going to stop, right? Because there's this aspect. I remember Jay actually telling, Jay Nordlinger, a colleague, telling telling Bill, don't don't stop. Ne- never stop because you're going to die, right? And there is that aspect of people that are so vested in their 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 life's work and their their calling. If they they give up, they they you know if they stop doing it, they do just everything shuts down. So I, I understand why this phenomenon is happening, but that doesn't make it any better. But uh, MBD, let's go back to something Charlie said a couple minutes ago. I want you to be honest. Charlie is indeed unelectable. Yes or no? Oh, he's uh, electable, yeah. He's electable? Dep- How dare on- you, Michael? <laughs> it, depends on, it, just, it just depends on the office. <laughs> Jeff, Charlie is unelectable, yes or no? No, America loves its Brits. You could just, you know, you know maybe you, Meghan Markle's going to get bored at some point. Hey, Charlie, I, suggestion, <laughs> you know. So I'm going to say Charlie is unelectable in the American context, and I don't just mean the the accent, but I could see him from a distance. It just seems more intellectually interesting people end up with parliamentary seats than end up in the U.S. Congress. So I think he'd be electable over in the U.K., but unfortunately not here. Well, one, what, by the way, one aspect of this conversation that is we didn't touch on, but that I I think is notable and horrible is that for some people senility becomes a feature for the politician because, because then the staff and the party can basically control the vote unimpeded by the intellection of the office holder themselves. And so like in, a, in some people would rather elect a partisan robot than a thinking and uh, living and breathing human being. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com. Your way around our extensively, uh, our increasingly extensive, I should say, metered paywall. Your way to see 90% fewer ads if you sign up and log in. Your way to dig deeper into our community. And your way, very, very importantly, to support our valuable journalism. We need people to pay a little bit for it. Not a lot, but just a little bit. If you haven't already, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National View readers as a member of NR+. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you've been listening to Charlie Crockett. Yeah, so I just found this guy. I was putting together a list of, um, a Spotify list of songs about places. And uh, for some reason, I just started searching town names for songs. And um, I searched for Odessa, uh, as in Odessa, Texas. Uh, up pops. Not, not, uh, not, no, not Ukraine. Uh, um, playing against type. And I thought it was going to be a Bee Gees <laughs> reference, actually. No, 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 no. And um, Up Pops, this beautiful song 
called Odessa uh, and by this very courtly sounding country singer. I thought it was probably from the 1940s or 50s. It turns out it came out last uh, this year or last year the, uh, on an album called The Man from Waco. And this guy, Charlie Crockett, is kind of um, some long descendant of Davy Crockett, some distant relative, who has suddenly popped up with a country career in his late 30s. I think in the last three years, he's put out a dozen albums and finally attracted attention to his music. And it's great. It's like, um, you know, it's, it's very straightforward and courtly. It's almost like Marty Robbins meets, uh, you know, um, you know, who else were we thinking of Neil Young or something? It's it's really quite good. Jeff, you've been thinking about Nick Lowe. Yeah, it seems like we're on a singer songwriter kick here at the end of the show because uh, you know, obviously, I do my political beats podcast on the side as well, and and, and we just covered with Matt Murray's the former editor of the Wall Street Journal, a guy who I just think more people on this in this world should know as one of the truly great singer songwriters, fellow by the name of Nick Lowe. He's right there at the British. He's a Brit who has, in his later age, become quite the country and roots rock Americana kind of a player. Um, he's had a, his brilliant early years when he was at the vanguard of new wave and post-punk and all of that to his later years where, you know, he went to Nashville. He married Johnny Cash's stepdaughter, uh, and, he, you know, he's... It, they got divorced a little bit later, but he's never he never lost the country part of that uh, experience, and uh, he has sunk into a wonderfully mature old age, still making great music to this day. Um, it, all parts of his career are wonderful. I also wrote a piece about it. You can check out at National Review too. Charlie, what are you up to? I went to see Oppenheimer, and I thought it was absolutely magnificent. Best film I've seen in a long long time i know it is lengthy at three hours but i didn't want it to end i was hooked right from the beginning until the last frame i'm a big christopher nolan fan and he didn't disappoint so i saw mission impossible which has been neglected and all this focus uh, over barbie and the aforementioned Oppenheimer. I was not a big Mission Impossible fan. In fact, I'd seen none of the movies until the last one, and I was just totally blown away by it. Totally blown. It was like the best action movie I've ever seen. I'm not not sure this one was quite as good, and you know, it ha has a, a convoluted plot that you can't really follow because it doesn't matter whether you follow it or not, right? Because it's still hugely entertaining and. And these movies, they just take the, these cliched movie scenes. How many times have we seen a fight on top of a train, right? Something that's impossible, right? It's never happened in human history, probably. A really fight on top of a moving train. And Mission Impossible does them, and the car chases too, of course. And they just end up being so much better than like any fight you've ever seen on top of a train in any movie. And this, this train scene, I won't ruin it, you know, in case anyone's going to uh, see this, Charlie. No, no plot spoilers. Uh, but it just... It, it it something happens in this this train scene. You're like, that's that's the most amazing thing I've seen in in film. And then something else happens in this train th scene. You're like, no, no, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in film. And then something else happens, just just topping itself uh, constantly. So not not as interesting uh, as as Oppenheimer, but uh, uh, a, a really uh, entertaining and fun movie nonetheless. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? 
Uh, my pick was a piece by Wilfred Riley today. Not everyone who lived the day before yesterday was evil. Uh, which I... <laughs> It's very, it's a very simple point, but it's actually one that has to be made. That um, just existing in the past and according to the norms of the past does not uh, make you wicked in some final way or even in a substantive way. Um, I like the the relativization of the present's uh, social norms when they are not necessarily tied to any real solid morality. And, uh, yeah, I just, I also just love what he contributes every week to the site. Jeff? My piece is going to be one by Andy McCarthy. It's pretty blunt because, uh, you know, Andy goes to the point. It just says, Trump can't win. <laughs> <laughs> then he explains why Trump can't win. Uh, obviously kind of fixated on this, but he, he goes through chapter and verse about how, as we've just discussed throughout the, the podcast, how he's going to be dragged down one way or another by the weight of all of this stuff. Charlie? I'm going to pick NR's coverage, sometimes at odds with each other coverage, of what happened while I was away. It's a rare feeling for me to miss something like this and then come back and have to pick up on the arguments completely de novo. But here I did, and I realized just how in-depth our coverage of this and many other things is. Yeah, that's what I was going to pick as well. Noah's dissent from the editorial, Andy's t defense of the editorial, and, and where you fall on, on this, regardless of where you fall on this, this line, is just hugely illuminating to have, you know, point and counterpoint on something that's so, um, so interesting and uh, so important. But uh, since you already took it, Charlie, I'll go with Jim Garrity's morning jolt on Vivek, who's been out there saying some wild stuff. He, he says that January 6th was censorship caused January 6th. And then someone was, someone dredged this up the other day. He was asked about some Fed Federal Reserve conspiracy where the Fed apparently is just adding zeros onto the bank accounts of, of favored people and and journalists. And he seemed to take this this seriously. And then he was saying he, he doesn't believe the September 11th uh, commission the other day. Cleaned it up by saying he he's uh, continues to be suspicious of the Saudi role and doesn't think we got to the bottom of that. Maybe, you know, that's that's more reasonable than than what it sounded like initially. But uh, Jim has a good good piece asking why is he saying this sort of stuff. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty. Who makes us sound better than we deserve? Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Waterstone at College L. And thanks especially to all of you for listening to the editors. We'll see you next time.